We're looking at Luke 24. This is um, our last sermon on the Gospel of Luke. It actually, we started it over I, I, about two and a half years ago. Um, and next week, we'll be starting a new series on uh, the letter of First John. So we'll, we'll do half of First John this summer and then ha- the second half of First John next summer. So uh, in the summers, we always look at a New Testament letter. So we'll be starting a new, new series uh, next week. That's what's ahead. Um, but this is Luke 24. We're starting in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer... And on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, how it says things that we weren't expecting it to say that it is surprising to us, challenging to us, that your word is different and greater than we are. So we ask that you would be our teacher. And Lord, you know my weakness as I stand here and teach. Uh, We ask for your spirit to come and um, take these words and apply them to the hearts of those who are here. Draw them to hope, to yourself, to the gospel, to Jesus. Um, That you would uh, stir in us a joy in all that you have done for us and that we would serve you with joy. So would your word um, work on us as we study it and work on it, would it work on us? And we ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So uh, this is the the last scene in uh, the book of Luke, and I think the topic is kind of a strange one. Um, You know, I mean, in some ways it's not strange at all. Basically, this last scene, Jesus is raised from the dead. He's alive. And now he sends his disciples out. You're going to go proclaim my name among all the nations. So that sounds uh, fairly predictable, uh, that that's what the end of Luke would be about. Jesus is raised from the dead. He sends out his disciples on the mission. But both in this passage, uh, both Jesus and Luke have an obsession with his body. They are insisting on that when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't a soul, it wasn't a spirit, he wasn't hovering over the ground 
like this is, this is I've done this before. This is my impression of a ghost or a spirit, you know, waving vapor. He wasn't a vapor, a cloud that was floating over the uh, over the ground. He was flesh and blood, right? You see that there, uh, verse thirty nine. Jesus says, "See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me, and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have." And he goes on to ask them for some lunch. He says, by the way, I'm flesh and bones. Give me some lunch. Let's eat something. And uh, I think this is strange. Uh, Actually, just last night I was at dinner, and I was talking to a guy. We were talking about all kinds of things, about the Bible. And and I brought up the resurrection of Jesus, that, yeah, his body rose from the dead. That's what Christians believe. And he says, oh, yeah, that, I just, I can't believe that. You know, the bones are kind of coming up, rattling, and he's rattling around, and he did his little impression of, uh, resurrected Jesus, and I was like, well, I, I didn't picture it—the bones rattling. And uh, well, I, so, anyways, it's strange, uh, strange of bodies, flesh and bones, coming back to life. And um, I think the reason that it's strange for us is because when we come to the Bible, we have certain things that we're expecting it to talk about. We're expecting it to talk about God. God, the spirit that's the ultimate reality behind the universe. We're expecting that. We're expecting it to talk about love your neighbor. This is how you should treat people. And we, sh- we even expect it to talk about uh, the afterlife, right? But then it starts talking about bodies coming back to life, and we say, uh, that, that, um, that's strange to us. It's unintuitive. It's, it's fantastic. It's odd. And I think that part of the reason for that is because for most of us, bodies in general are a little bit suspect. They're a little bit strange. I mean, besides the fact that they're all kind of weird shaped, I mean, just a normal body has ears and noses, and it's kind of a strange, odd thing, but then we all have different shaped bodies. And and yet, um, and our bodies are always falling apart. They're always getting sick, and uh, they don't work right. And, you know, I'm, I'm 31. Many of you think that's quite young, but I'm starting to have to tell Shannon to not give me... St- seconds or every plate of food that I, I asked for. So uh, my body, you know, the body's changing, it gets old, it's falling apart. And our bodies are fill, filled with all kinds of lusts and passions and desires that we often feel ashamed of. And uh, the body seems to be a big problem. And uh, in fact, that's why uh, for uh, many cultures throughout history, most cultures have said that the body is, is a bad thing. Basically, who you are is you are a soul that's trapped in a prison of a body. And we got to get rid of the body. And once we die, finally, freed from all those wicked desires and lusts and passions, and we've moved on, our soul has gone on to a different place. And actually, I see a little of that in that kind of thinking in myself. You know, I do this thing with my kids where I go up to, uh, go up to them, and I'm like, hello in there. Hello, little person. You know, I'm looking in their face, and I imagine my kids are basically a robot with a little green man controlling them inside them. And I'm trying to get into the green man. Tell the green man that I'm his father. And they look at me, and they're like, Dad! I'm not in here. The body, this body is me. And I'm like grabbing their arms. Hello, get, hello in there. And they're saying, there's no one in there. I am me. My body is me. And they're correcting me. And it's actually, that's a deeply profound statement. My body is me. There's nothing inside of me. The body is me. And actually, that's what Jesus says, right? Uh, you see that there, uh, verse 40. And when he had said, the, uh, sorry, verse, uh, verse 39, touch me and see 
Uh, sorry, no, verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. My body is who I am. And uh, what's, what that means, why that's such a profound statement, that who you are is your body, is it means that the thing that God's saving <laughs> is not just your soul, but he's saving your body. And the thing that God loves is not just your soul, and he doesn't want to just speak nice things so your soul feels better. He loves your body. And the thing that God wants to use in the world and use in people's lives and impact people's lives, not just your soul, but your body. He wants your body to put your body somewhere and use it. And it, throughout the Bible, the Bible is a very earthy, physical kind of book. And in fact, the main thing about the Bible is that there's a God who made a physical world, and he said it was very good. And then that God said, physical world's so good that he himself took on flesh and bones in, in Jesus and became a body. And so uh, there's, I think this is strange. I, 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 that's my impression of it. it does, this is not intuitive to me. And yet the Bible is talking about it all over the place. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to develop a little bit of a theology of physical bodies and uh, the significance of them in our spiritual life. We're going to look at a few things about that. And really in four ways. That first of all, our bodies... The body is the object of Jesus' peace. When Jesus gives us peace, it's something that's not just happening in our soul, but in our, in our bodies. That's his intent. It, also, the body is the object of Jesus' resurrection. The main event in the Bible is about a body. The body is the object of Jesus' mission. I'll explain that. And then also, the body is the object of Jesus' spirit. So these are four things. You might think they're strange, but uh, we'll... We'll see, okay? So first of all, significance of the body. Well, first of all, the body is the object of Jesus' peace. Now, you see this passage begins, Jesus risen from the dead. In verse 36, it says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Peace to you. And that's a, it's a warm, nice staying, you know, they're kind of unsettled, and he's speaking peace to them. But, you know, Jesus uh, was a Jew, and Jesus' whole imagination, his whole view of the world had been shaped by the Old Testament scriptures. And so when he uses the word peace, we have to understand that what he's thinking of is the Old Testament version of peace, which was the, old, the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is, uh, you know, when we think of having peace, we primarily think of kind of an inner contentment, you know, a, a quieting of, of the inner restlessness. And certainly peace includes that. Certainly peace is a part of that. But shalom in the Old Testament is much broader than, than just your inner soul peace. Um, it's actually much more holistic. It's about, uh, it's about your relationships. You know, uh, when Israel in the Old Testament would have shalom, it would mean they're not battling enemies. They're not having enemies fighting against them. There's kind of a social peace. It, it has to do with other people, not just me, but my relationships with other people. And it's physical, uh, it would be, you know, they have crops and they have food and they're having babies. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of physical attributes of living in God's creation. That's what shalom is. And then, of course, shalom is also being at peace with God. It's walking with God. It's dwelling with God. It's knowing him and loving him and, and uh, uh, you know, following his commands and knowing his promises and all these things. The, this holistic um, picture is what shalom is. That the, that the Old Testament says that uh, in Psalm 16, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
peace is a bodily reality in the Bible. Now, um, I'll tell you one way that I think that biblical peace is, is, is different than other kinds of peace. If you take, for example, a Buddhist idea of peace, that's a, a, an important concept of kind of uh, inner peace in Buddhism. But in Buddhism, uh, the main idea is that I'm trying to detach myself from the de- desires of the world. I have all these desires. I want all these things. I want food. I want relationships. I want people. And I want uh, acceptance or approval. And I'm trying to let go of all these desires. So if I can just wash myself of the desires, then there won't be the anxiety and the restlessness inside. And I'll have that kind of freedom. And so it's kind of an emptying. The biblical idea of peace is actually the opposite. It's not a letting go of your desires and the pleasures. It's realizing that God gave you those desires and pleasures and only he can fulfill them. He's the one who will fulfill them. And that the way that you have peace is by finding your rest in the giver of, you know, as Trev said during our uh, thanks, prayer of thanksgiving this morning, that God's the giver of every good gift. And finding those and that that's what God intends for us. And that, that that's what God hopes for us. And so that um, uh, peace is about Shalom in God's creation, it's physical. And, you know, I, I've seen the significance of this. Uh, when I was in St. Louis, I may have shared this with you. I had a friend there who was a Buddhist, and we'd get together and talk about spirituality and religion and things. And, uh, and he came over for dinner, and uh, my wife Shannon's a very good cook, and she had a big piece of meat and piled potatoes, and it was a really delicious uh, meal with a glass of wine. And he just loved this meal. And later he said, you know... I, he had a group of friends who were Buddhists and a group of friends who were Christians. And he said, you know, one of the things that I can't get over is that whenever I go to my Buddhist friend's house for dinner, it's always like rice and beans. And, you know, it's, I don't want to have any pleasures. So it's very simple. And they're, you know, this is probably a bad characterization of Buddhists. I don't mean to, you know, if any of you are Buddhists, don't take offense. But this was, this is how he said, this was his observation as a Buddhist. The difference is that there was this kind of, I don't want, I can't give myself to any desires. And he says, but then, but I love food. And I go over to my Christian's friend's house, and they always have all these flavors and meat and drink. And I love going over to their house for dinner. And I'll tell you, what's, why, is the, why is such a different experience at these two houses? The reason is because of the theology of the body. The theology of desires, the theology of the physicality that the Bible says they are good things. And that the, uh, the promises that God has for us, the hope that God has for us, is a physical promises. Now, I'm going to talk about what that is in a minute. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting is a lot of people in the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, this was kind of baffled me for a long time as a Christian. You go to the Old Testament, you know, you become a Christian, and you say, well, becoming a Christian is about how do I get to heaven when I die? So I believe in Jesus so I can go to heaven when I die. And then you start reading the Old Testament, and you said, there's nothing about heaven anywhere in this place. There's nothing about the afterlife. It's all about this chunk of land, and they want to have crops and uh, famines, and are they going to get food, and are they going to have babies, and are they going to find a spouse? It's so this-worldly. It's about this creation. And all God's promises in the Old Testament, they're all about physical things like you know, land and food and, and, uh, and babies and things. I said, what, what's going on? Where's the, the main message? And the, the issue is, I, I think the key is that the Old Testament is preparing us for what the real promise that God is going to have for us in the New Testament. Because if we just come right to the New Testament, 
we think the New Testament is going to tell us about what's going to happen to our souls. And then we come to this passage, and Jesus and Luke are saying, it's not my soul, it's not a soul that was raised from the dead, it was my flesh and bones. And that leads to the second thing that's significant about bodies, is that bodies are the object of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was not his soul. It was not some, it's, it, it, the Easter story does not mean there is some existence beyond the grave. It's much more profound. It's much more shocking than that. It's not just that there's some existence. It's that his flesh and bones uh, were raised from the dead. And, um, and he's eating and we see that they're hammering this. I mean, Luke is hammering this. He's going to end his gospel. I Don't miss this. And we see two responses from the disciples as they uh, encounter the risen Jesus and they're looking at his flesh and bones. The first response is that they were startled. You see that in there in verse 37. But they were, you know, he shows up in the room and it says, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They don't know what's going on. Uh, there, there's a fear of the realm of the dead. And they know Jesus died. And they're, they're, there's this question of what's going on. And the thing is, the existence of Jesus' body in their presence did not fit into any of their categories. It didn't fit into their categories. I feel that way, that it doesn't fit into any of my categories. You know, I, uh, one of my convictions as a pastor in this church is I believe that the Bible makes sense of our world. So... You know, a lot of times people view the Bible as, okay, Bible has a list of arbitrary doctrines that if you happen to believe these things, then you get to go to heaven when you die. And it's just, what's it, you know, if you happen to believe this, you get to go to heaven, but if you happen to believe that, you don't. And, and one of my big convictions is like, no, these aren't just arbitrary doctrines. This book ex- really explains the world to us. It makes sense of the world. But when I come to this, flesh and bones walking around, I say, this doesn't make sense of the world. This is odd. The way to understand it is this. Why is it odd? Well, the Bible says, you're going to get a lot of theology in this this sermon, so gear up. Um, So the the Bible says that the, the human history is broken up into two ages, this present age and the age to come. And the age to come is called the new creation or the new heavens and the new earth where God is going to make all things new and he's going to rid the world of all evil and he's going to uh, restore it and uh, all things are going to finally be and God's going to come and live. Uh, the heaven and earth are going to become one place and we're going to live in the presence of God. The reason why this is so odd is because Jesus' resurrection is not something in this present age, some odd thing that happened in this present age. It's the first event of the new creation. It's a bit of that future new world being planted in the middle of the old world. And that's why it's odd. It's shocking. It's startling for us. We say, I I, I didn't expect to find this in the Bible. I thought the Bible was going to tell me how to love people and about um, how to find contentment in my soul and how to have a relationship with God and how to love people and things like that. I wasn't expecting flesh and bones walking around. And the reason is because it's a startling hope. It should be shocking. It doesn't fit in our categories. That's what we should expect, though, right? I mean, if God is really God, if he's far beyond us, wouldn't we expect that God is going to be doing something that doesn't fit in our categories? And you see that after they're startled, their next response is that they're joyful. Almost immediately, it turns into joy. And I, I love this, this phrase here. It's a great phrase in verse 41. And it says, And while they still disbelieved for joy. 
They still disbelieved for joy. They're thinking, they're joyful, they're ecstatic. They're saying, wow, it's not just a soul, but God is healing the physical world, the, the body. And they can't imagine it, they can't believe it, but they're delighted. There's laughter, there's joy, there's um, a, a celebration in that. And um, that Jesus has conquered death. And um, I think the reason that there's joy is that the, um, the belief of Christians is this. You know, many people have kind of questions about, okay, how does heaven work? What, what's the relationship between what happened to Jesus and what's going to happen to us? How does all this work? This is basically what Christians believe. And this isn't Nate's novel idea. This, is, this, is, this goes back throughout church history. This is very ecumenical belief, is that what God did for Jesus. So when we die, our soul is ripped from our body. You know, like my kids say, I'm not a soul in a body. My body is me. So when you die and your soul is ripped from your body, a great violence is being done to you, to your person. It's not a happy thing. It's not a, it's, the Bible always says that death is a terrible thing. And that ripping apart in your soul, if you're, if you're a Christian, you go and you be with God. But that's not your salvation. Your salvation is when Christ comes again and he brings heaven with him to earth. And God does for us what he did for Jesus when he raised his flesh and bones from the dead and our souls and bodies are united and heaven and earth become one place and we live with God forever and ever. Now, if, if you think that that might be an um, idiosyncrasy of my theology, you look at the Apostles' Creed, which is the most ecumenical statement of Christian faith that all denominations believe and is written in the second century. It says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And the, and the life everlasting. It's right there in the Apostles' Creed. That's what Christians believe. And the joy is that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us, our bodies. And, you know, the, the thing about your body, that's who you are. The, you know, your, your body has certain skills. It has certain, you have a certain uh, mannerisms that, uh, that make you who you are, that make people like you. The way, that, you know, skills that you can do, things you can do with your hands, the things that you know. Some of you are athletic. Some of you uh, can build things. Some of you, some of you are artistic or can do mus- music. These are all things that you do with your body. And what we see in each other right now, we just see these little glimpses of what God intended us to be, of what God intended our bodies to be. We have these little sp- shots of joy where we feel like, wow, I was finally being what God intended to be, but God intended me to be, but it's so rare. And we have it every once in a while. And we say, what if God saved us? What if God delivered us from all evil, delivered us from everything bad in the world? What would it look like? It would have to look like our bodies being restored and you finally being shining radiant, exactly what God intended you to be. And that's what these disciples are seeing in Jesus is they disbelieved for joy. <laughs> I feel like that describes me as I read this passage. I disbelieved for joy. I can't even believe that would be true. And yet if it was, it would be amazing. And uh, C.S. Lewis has this, uh, this great quote in his, his book, The Weight of Glory. Right? It was a sermon uh, that he gave. And at the climax of the sermon, he says, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you now saw it, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as uh, you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. 
you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's who you're sitting with in this room, is people who will be transformed flesh and, bo- flesh and bones, raised up together. That's the hope of the gospel. The object of Jesus' resurrection is a message about our bodies. And uh, Now, what that leads us to is a third thing, significance of our bodies, is that, this, that our bodies are not just the objects of Jesus' peace and the objects of Jesus' resurrection, but they're also the objects of Jesus' mission. And, um, you know, there's this... Uh, you see this here in, in verse 44, that as soon as Jesus is raised, he says, everyone got it, I'm alive, my body's alive. He immediately turns to tell them, the disciples, what their mission is. And this is what he says in verse 44. Uh, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem you are my witnesses of these things. Um, and what we read, uh, and actually, I, I was talking to someone, they'd asked me about if, if the ascension was in the book of Luke, and I told them it wasn't, but actually, if you read the last verse there, uh, the ascension does show up. Uh, when Jesus, a- after his resurrection, he goes back into heaven, and where it's from heaven where he's seated as kind of the king of the world with, at God's right hand, and he sends out his disciples to go tell the world the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. And as you read the book of Acts, which is Luke's second volume, that's what they do. They go out, and the main message that they're so excited about, so joyful about, so willing to suffer and die for, is that Jesus is alive. He, paid for, he died for our sins, and we're forgiven, and now his body, he's alive. He conquered death. Um, that was the good news that they have for them. And um, the reason why... The resurrection leads us to mission is because the resurrection says that God cares about this world. God is not scrapping this world and saying, I'm going to find a consolation prize in the netherworld where your soul gets to go and be in the netherworld. I'm going to redeem this world. And uh, in a number of places in the Bible, us as, as, as Jesus' disciples, our mission is primarily something that we do with our bodies. Uh, let, me, let me just read. One, one example of this is from 2 Corinthians, where Paul's talking about his life and ministry and his, as uh, doing Jesus' mission to proclaim the gospel. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the jars of clay? That's our bodies. They're, they're weak. They're falling apart. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies. For, uh, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What Jesus, what Paul says, what Jesus has called me to do, my mission in the world to serve him and to follow him is something that I do with my body. And what that means is that if God is going to be using you in whatever 
God has you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, uh, in your family, in this church. What it's going to look like is you taking your body and putting it somewhere where he can use it. That's the big part of uh, serving God is taking your body and placing it somewhere where God can use it. You know, you've heard me say that before. It's about showing up. Showing up and believing that God is going to work is I'm just going to put my body somewhere. I'm going to put my body in a relationship with my neighbor or a dinner with them or uh, serving uh, so, somewhere in this church or in a home group, somewhere that causes me anxiety. I, I don't want to be there. I, I don't, that, being in that place causes me stress. Put your body there and trust God. That's what the mission looks like. And uh, I should say, though, there's one particular part of your body that uh, Jesus is interested in. Um, because he says that you're going to be proclaiming his name among the nations. That's what he says to his disciples. So your mouth is uh, a key piece of doing Jesus' mission. That He says that one of the main ways that we serve him and do what he's called us to be is by speaking the gospel. That Jesus has died for our sin and that he's risen from the dead, that he's alive. And, um, you know, let me just... Uh, one comment that I want to make about that, that it's important to notice that Jesus says that our calling is to proclaim. That's, you know, as we think about what does it mean uh, as we place our bodies somewhere, and Jesus says that our calling is to speak about the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ. Um, Sometimes we feel it's our responsibility to convert people to change their hearts, to change their minds, that I need to uh, convince them. I, um, I'm going to get all my arguments together. I'm going to prove that everything they think is wrong, and then finally they'll have no chance, and they'll have to uh, believe what I believe and, and come onto my side. And uh, that's not what Jesus calls us to do. He doesn't call us to convert anyone. He calls us to proclaim. We just say, this is what God's done. And... I can't change your heart. I can't make you believe this. I, I can't barge into to your life and uh, point out everything that's wrong with you and, and uh, you know, assume that kind of role in your life and tell you you have to do all these things. All I can do is proclaim to you this is what the gospel is and trust that the Spirit's at work in your heart. And uh, you, do you see how freeing that is? Is that when we go into relationships, I don't have to, I don't have to uh, get angry at a person or get upset with them because they don't believe like me. I just say, well, this is what I believe. It's good news. It gives me joy. I, you can be a part of it. And if you don't believe it, okay, I'm still your friend. <laughs> I don't have to get all worked up because our calling is proclamation. Our, our po- calling is not to, to transform them and to urge them and to, uh, and to manipulate them. And so our calling is to put our body somewhere and to use our mouth and to proclaim and to speak. And we can't lose that as a church here. We can't lose that sense of that's our calling as Christians is to speak the gospel to people who don't know Christ. That's what the resurrection, in Jesus' mind, that's what it leads to, okay? Now, um, a couple questions that rise from that is, uh, on the one hand, you might say, well, uh, you know, put my body somewhere. My body's got all kinds of problems. Uh, You know, I'm weak. I don't know what to say. Um, I'm a sinner, and I do all kinds of things wrong. And uh, how do I... (laughs) uh, how do I know that if I put my body somewhere and I show up where God wants me to be, that anything good is going to happen of it? Well, that's uh, our fourth thing, that the body is the object of Jesus' spirit also. The body is the object of Jesus' spirit. Now, I have to explain another thing because I think someone is probably wondering this. Um, 
you know, in verse 36, if you've read this passage before, it says, uh, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. I, if, if you're familiar with this verse, uh, in John's gospel, he talks about this, this scene that happens, and uh, it, he also mentions that the doors were locked. So they're all in this room, they're scared, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, poof, Jesus is in the room. And so there's all different explanations. How did Jesus get in there? And I've heard some people say, Jesus had a key. And he was prepared. And he opened the key. And uh, so, so maybe. Uh, I, I've also heard that he, he, Jesus walks through walls. Maybe. Uh, I don't think that's what it is. Walking through walls sounds a little ghostly for me. That sounds like this, right? Walking, uh, I'm a vapor passing through the wall. Uh, I think there's another answer to it. And uh, follow me here for a second. Uh, you know, I just mentioned a minute ago that what Christians believe is that there's an age coming where heaven and earth become one place. And that Jesus' body, the resurrection, is the beginning of that new creation. It's a little piece of that new creation. And so he already is in heaven and earth at the same time. He already is heaven and earth come together. And so I think what's happening here is that he's kind of, he can kind of pass in from heaven and earth in and out, you know, at will. I don't know how that works. There's a doorway or something. I, we'll have to ask him about that, how that was all working. Um, but the point is this, that Jesus' body was heaven and earth brought together. And I'll tell you why that's important. Look at verse, 39, uh, look at verse 49. And behold... This is what he says to his disciples. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And this is, of course, talking about the sending of the Spirit. And the Spirit, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, the very power that makes him a bit of new creation, we are all clothed with now. We are clothed with that power that, you know, Paul says, you are a chunk of new creation. You are a chunk. You, uh, you know, if you are in Christ, you are, you are new creation. You are a bit of that new world planted now into this old world. You are the hope of what the world can be and will be and what God is making the world into be. You are a little token of it planted into your little workplace, into your family, into your neighborhood. God has just placed it there as a, as a signpost to the, of the age to come. And that's what it means that your body is clothed with power. You, you have the Holy Spirit upon you. So you say, well, how am I going to, why would I show up and put my body in a place where uh, God can use me? It's because you believe that the power is upon you. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is present with your body. And you might say, well, I don't feel that. <laughs> I, when I show up in places, I, I don't feel the power upon me. But, you know, it's very interesting. The same word that's used for power is what Paul uses uh, in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, where Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is clothed on the people who feel weak and still put their bodies there. The spirit is present in working in ways that you don't even know. And uh, <laughs> this is God's picture for us uh, of the body. Where is God at work? God is at work in flesh and bones and bodies, in this body, in your body. And um, what is God saving? God is saving our bodies. And I think this is a strange thing, but it's a wonderful thing. And you might ask, you know, how, how do you get that hope? How could you actually make the change that I could believe in something so wild as that? 
you know, where I have shalom, where I have uh, where, uh, the hope of the resurrection, where I'm on mission with Jesus, where I have, I'm clothed with power. Where could I, how could I take that step and believe that that could be something for me? Jesus gives us the answer. Verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Why is he telling them to look at his hands and feet? What's on his hands and feet? The scars, the marks, that he went to the cross for them. He says, look at how much I loved you. I would go and I would die for you. This is how, this is how deeply God wants you, is that he would go and pay for all of your sins you've ever done, and he would die on the cross. He says, look at him. It's me. That's how you recognize me. And it's when you recognize that there's a God that would love you that deeply and that you're willing to embrace that, it's then that you'll start to have the kind of imagination where you could actually believe that God might actually restore not just your soul but your body and this whole creation and that you could have a share and a part in it. Do you believe that? Are you willing to trust that, to rest in it, to receive in it, to have your imagination of the world just exploded by that? That's what Luke the Gospel of Luke is ending with is that we would be able to dream that God loves us that deeply that he uh, would transform even our bodies. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we uh, thank you for this text. We thank you for the work that you've done uh, in raising Jesus from the dead and that we can look at him and say it's already happened as we look forward to the day where you will restore us and that we'll be in your presence. We pray that you would use us. And I know that there are places, that the people in this room, there are places where you want them to just plant their bodies and be present, that you might do, uh, that they might do your work and that you might give us opportunities to proclaim what Jesus has done and that it would transform us and that it would give us joy. So uh, we ask um, that uh, you would increase this hope in us, enlarge our hearts that we might run in your commandments. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.